Yeah, so over the last few weeks, we've studied many of Jesus' parables, and we know what to expect from them. But today's parable is actually a bit different. Because you see, in all the parables we've looked at so far, we've seen stories with various characters and other things that stand as symbols. We've seen farmers, shepherds, servants, sons, sheep, coins, fields, the list goes on. And all of these had their meanings that could be understood by the people. Time and again, we've heard this phrase, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And we've seen how they were often understood, even if the hearers didn't like what they were hearing. At the end of the parable of the talents, we read that they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But this time, it's a bit different, because he doesn't couch it in symbols. Yes, there's a certain drama to how the story is told, but the characters are direct representatives of the people that are sitting there in front of him. Over the last few weeks, we've met these characters many times, sitting there in the crowd. But this time, they themselves are in the story. This time, he's blunt and says it as it is. He doesn't mince his words at all. Our story tonight has two characters in it. And I want us to look at who they were, what they thought of themselves, how they approached God, how they left. And then finally, I want to look at what happened next. And so let's meet our characters. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And immediately we've hit a big problem with understanding this passage. If we've been around church for any time at all, we know these characters all too well. We know that Pharisees are villains. And we know that tax collectors come good in the end. We know that Jesus had harsh words for the Pharisees and dined with the tax collectors. But these are Christian New Testament stereotypes. We need to forget about all that if we're to understand the scandal of this passage. This parable hits home because it overturns totally what was expected in first century Judea. Because these two figures would be well known within society. The first, the Pharisee. He's a respected religious leader. He's an honoured member of the community. The Pharisees are a religious group who are renowned for their teachings on the law of Moses and their interpretation of it and application of it to the minutiae of everyday life. And they were particularly concerned about ritual purity, about doing everything possible to avoid anything that might make them unclean, such as the other character. A tax collector. He's a hated and despised traitor. He's one of their own people, but he's collaborating with the occupying Roman forces. He was probably very rich because they were notorious for embezzlement, taking from their own people to give to the authorities and taking their own cup to line their pockets along the way. It would be very clear to Jesus' original audience 
Who was the goody and who was the baddie in this story? One was respected, the other hated. One gave to the poor, the other stole and exploited. One was considered to be a good man, the other a sinner. So if that's what society thought about them, what did they think of themselves? Well, the Pharisee, he's proud of himself and all that he's achieved. He's confident of his status in society. He thinks that his good deeds, his adherence to every last letter of the law, makes him a good man. And he's careful to avoid anything that might make him unclean. Presumably he's aware that he's not perfect. But he considers that his failings are insignificant. They're totally outweighed by the good things that he does. And because he's so confident in his own status, he looks down on the others that he thinks haven't achieved that level. He's the very definition of the phrase, holier than thou. We read in the first verse of our passage that Jesus is speaking to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. This is exactly who this Pharisee is. So what about the tax collector? What did he think of himself? Well, he knows that everything they say about him is true. And more. He's painfully aware of how far wrong he has gone. He's reminded about it every day by the looks people give him, by the muttering behind his back. But even without these things, he knows. We don't know how he got to this position. Presumably he had his reasons. Maybe he'd been in a desperate situation and just needed anything that would pay. Maybe it was just meant to be a temporary thing until something more respectable came along. Or maybe he went into it with eyes wide open. He just wanted money and power and was willing to do whatever he needed to get it. But either way, he's got himself into a position that he can see no way out of. He's comfortable, yeah. He's wealthy. But he's hated and he hates himself. And so, having looked at how both of these characters thought of themselves, how did they come to the temple? How did they approach the worship of God? How they act is completely different, because what they thought of themselves had a profound influence of how, on how they came to worship God. First of all, we see the Pharisee, confident, proud, boldly strolling into the temple, standing apart from the crowds so that he could be seen. He's putting on a display. Everything he says is about himself. His prayer consists of telling God and anyone that was listening how good he was. And in particular, how much better he is than that scum over in the corner. But he carefully wraps it in the pretense of giving thanks to God. 
but as well as showing how much he thought of himself, his attitude here shows how little he thought of God. Yes, he knew that God was good, but he had brought God's goodness down to his own level. He actually believed that it was possible that he might be impressive to God. He'd made God so small that it seemed reasonable to try and impress him rather than just to bow down and worship. In contrast to this, we see the tax collector. He approaches the temple hesitantly. He's humble, hiding away in a corner, looking down at his feet. He knows that he's an outcast from society, but more than that, he knows he is not worthy to come into the presence of God. And his prayer is simple. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He confesses his sin and he pleads for mercy. He doesn't compare himself with others. He doesn't offer any mitigating excuses. He doesn't bring up any of the good things that probably he had done. Anything that might make him look better. Interestingly, he doesn't actually confess specific sins. He knows that it's not just he is a good person who has done some wrong things, but that his nature and identity is a sinner. And he knows that he can do nothing to change this. Probably over the years he's tried and failed. But he realizes that his only hope is to fling himself on the mercy of God. But if he has a low view of himself, he has a very high view of God. Because he knows that God's goodness is transcendent. He knows that he is not someone to be trifled with. His reaction is the same as that of anyone who realizes who they are and who God is. We see this right back in Genesis when Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Or Isaiah, when he has his vision of the Lord and cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or Peter in the boat when he cries out, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. These are the natural reactions of people who have recognized the goodness and holiness and majesty of God. And in contrast with that, how depraved and broken that they really are. And so he approaches God in humility, asking for mercy. And so, having approached in different ways, how do our characters leave? Well, the Pharisee, 
he left exactly the way he came. Nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. And to be honest, he's quite fine with that because he doesn't think he has any need to change. He came proud of his status. He left proud of his status. He came confident in his good works and he left with that confidence unshaken. He came with a disdain for others and left with the same prejudice. He came with a small view of God and he left with that exact same view. He might as well have stayed at home. But things are totally different for the tax collector. Because we read in verse 14 that he went home justified. He left changed. He left a different man. Because God heard his plea for mercy and forgave his sin. It isn't just God's goodness and holiness that is far beyond what we can imagine. But also his grace to those who seek his mercy. The Pharisee was the one who tried to be careful to avoid anything unclean. But it's the tax collector who God declares to be clean. And he wasn't just clean because God chose to turn a blind eye to his sin. He didn't just brush it under the carpet. He dealt with it. Jesus' listeners at the time, they wouldn't have understood how. They knew that God could forgive sins, but they didn't yet know how he could. But Jesus, at this point, is on his way to Jerusalem. In a few days, weeks at most, he will die for the sins of the tax collectors, for your sins, for mine. And he'll rise again to offer new life. This doesn't mean that there weren't still consequences that the tax collector had to deal with. In chapter 19, we meet Zacchaeus, a real-life tax collector who repented. And he had a lot of things that he had to put right, starting by making restitution to the people that he had cheated. But before God, his sin was dealt with. The guilty verdict hanging over him was gone. His status and identity had changed. And like we heard about last week, there would be much rejoicing in heaven over this sinner repenting. But I think a really important question for us to answer here is what happened next? What happened to these characters after they had gone home? Obviously, as they were just characters in a story, they ceased to exist as soon as the story ended. But if they had been real people, what might have happened? I think this is a really important question to look at because I'm aware that the vast majority of people listening, quite probably all of you, 
have already come to God in repentance, are already Christians. And it's so easy to let a story like this just wash over us. We know it. So let's go back to our two characters one last time. For the Pharisee, life went on as before. As we said, nothing had changed in his life. And quite possibly, nothing ever would. But in time, who knows? The book of Acts speaks of believers who belonged to the Pharisees. Indeed, the apostle Paul himself was a Pharisee. There was still time for the Pharisee to turn and repent. So what about the tax collector? Could life carry on the same for him? He was now justified. He was righteous before God. Could he just go back to his old life? If he was forgiven, did it really matter what he did now? Well, Paul, that Pharisee turned apostle, had something to say on the matter. In Romans 6, he addresses this exact question, shall we go on sinning? And he has a bold answer, by no means. Other translations put it, of course not, absolutely not, or even God forbid. It's completely inappropriate for him just to continue living his life the way he had been. Repentance that doesn't involve change is not repentance at all. At best, it's just remorse. And for us, who looking back understand the price that bought our salvation, as we remembered in communion this morning, how can we take it for granted so much that we can say, thank you for paying the price for my sin, and oh, by the way, here's some more for you to deal with. It would be completely unreasonable for him to just go back to his old life. So does that mean he went on to live a perfect life? That he never sinned again? Well, Paul again has something to say about this in just the next chapter, Romans 7. Here he describes the struggle of warring desires, of warring natures. He says, what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. Paul confesses that he is still totally and utterly needy and dependent. He may have had one of the most dramatic conversions in history. He may be one of the apostles with the biggest influence in spreading the gospel around the world. But he is still incapable of living a good life by his own strength. Time and again, he finds that he does the very things that he hates. So has nothing changed? Are we left still just trying our best and failing? No. The biggest thing that has changed is our identity. Sinner is no longer our identity. As we sang earlier, we are now a redeemed child of God who sins sometimes. It's a subtle 
but profound difference because it completely changes who we are. And it changes how we should think of ourselves. And therefore, it changes how we approach God. We still, like the tax collector, need to confess our sin to God. Both our general sinfulness and the specific places where we are aware that we have failed. We need, like Paul, to confess our weakness and our need. To acknowledge that we can't do it on our own. We need to confess to God that there are sins that we struggle with and that we need him to give us the strength to resist temptation, the strength to put to death daily the desires of our sinful nature. And it may be that we need to confess these struggles to our brothers or sisters so that they might help us in that fight. But we also need to make sure that we don't get caught up by the thinking of the Pharisee. That doing good things, and particularly doing religious things, will somehow impress God. We know that our salvation is by grace alone. But do we sometimes feel that maybe going to the prayer meeting, reading the Bible, listening to some worship music, in some ways might make up for some of our other failings? They don't. Not at all. Oh yes, they're good things. They're things we should be doing. They're things that may help us in the fight and in building and strengthening our relationship. But just as our salvation was by grace alone, so too is our ongoing sanctification. But finally, we need to rejoice in our salvation, not just grovel in our sin. Yes, we need to be aware of our sin, but it should not drive us to despair, but to worship. I remember the first time I read The Fight by John White, almost 20 years ago. One line in the first chapter hit me. He writes, You are not given permission to crawl into God's presence, but to approach him with your head held high. I don't remember exactly what was going on in my life at the time, but I still remember the joy that this line brought. Because our identity is not that of a sinner, but of a sinner saved by grace, and that is something completely different. And so, as we come to an end, how have we come to worship God tonight? What is our view of ourselves? What is our view of God? Have we come thinking there is something that we can bring God? That we can somehow impress him? Or have we come knowing that we can bring nothing? that we are wholly dependent on his grace, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, have we come knowing our weakness and failure and rejoicing in the wonder of our salvation.
just as we finish some lines from a song. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross.